Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you are about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome everyone to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here on Habits for Happiness today to talk about the habit of reflective writing is Sheila Hamilton. Welcome, Sheila. Hi, it's so good to be with you, lady. Thank you. Let me just introduce you because you are a superstar, literally. Sheila is a five-time Emmy award-winning journalist. She's the author of the beautiful book, All the Things We Never Knew, Chasing the Chaos of Mental Illness, illness, which I just finished, (laughs) and it's It's powerful and gripping. Sheila is also the creator of Spotify's fastest growing mental health series, Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton, and hosts the award-winning video series, Chasing Chaos. Sheila owns Beyond Well Media, whose priority is mental health awareness and well-being. Beyond Well Solutions provides media programming and managerial training for companies who seek to engage employees with pathways to better mental health. And if all of that were not enough, Sheila is a nationally recognized speaker on workplace well-being, mental health resilience, and how to build a mental health toolbox. So, t- Sheila, tell us, what are you working on today? What's what's your newest, latest, and greatest? Well, the, the most exciting thing I'm doing is talking with you, lady, because I've heard incredible things about your program and just you as a human being. So I try to um, focus on what's good right now. And I'm so happy to be with you. And the rest of the day, um, I have a new puppy here with me because my daughter came to visit with her brand new Bernadoodle. So hoping to have a little like casual Friday and spend some time with the puppy. Oh, good. I hope we get to see him through the yeah. through listeners. You won't be able to see him, but video watchers yeah. will see him. Okay. So tell us about this habit of reflective writing. Why did you choose it? And tell us more. I need to kind of back up into how I discovered it. And mm-hmm. um, uh, this was now almost 13 years ago. I was um, married to a builder designer, a beautiful man who I shared an incredible life with. And we had had a really difficult patch in our marriage, probably three very tumultuous years where his behavior just seemed to be really unlike him. He would be impulsive. He started cheating on me. He was not running his business very well. He seemed to be going in these spirals where he would have times where he was very, very manic almost. And then he would have days when he would tell me it was very difficult to get out of bed. And through all of this, he really did not want to seek any help, lady. He felt Mm -hmm. very strongly that he was just encountering a rough patch in his life and that he'd be able to get through it. And then his um, dad died, which he had a really tumultuous relationship with. And he asked a friend of his who was a doctor for antidepressants. And I think it was probably 48 hours within um, the time of taking those antidepressants, he was hearing voices telling him to Mm -hmm. jump from the Vista Bridge. And we began this kind of spiral into what I can only call a full-blown mental health crisis. And my husband was hospitalized. And it was during that time that I began to see like I didn't have a very um, well-sought-out mental health routine for myself. And so I would just take the time to just 
sit and write actually what was occurring in my body, what was occurring in my heart, what was occurring in my thoughts. I'd never really had a, a strong journaling experience because I'm a professional writer. And when you're forced to write every single day, it's not the thing that you turn to to relax. But it was during this period that I really felt as if I needed a place to get my thoughts outside of my brain, put them somewhere other than myself. And um, thank God I had this because the day after my husband was released from psychiatric care, he went missing. And for six weeks, my daughter and I were in a state of total just not knowing. You know, we didn't know if my husband had abandoned us, if he'd left on a vacation, if he, if he was ever coming back. And um, it was a really like horrible winter that winter in Portland, Oregon. And um, it was two weeks before Christmas when I got a phone call that authorities had found my husband's body and he had died by suicide. And I think at the time, it was so chaotic. It was so um, shocking to me that my husband was the most kind of peaceful. He hated guns. He hated anything to do with violence, would actually end his life this way, that I returned to this habit of just writing anything on anything I could find, a piece of paper, uh, a book, a receipt, to be able to say, at this moment, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling. Yeah, I'll tell and you what it did, lady, is that mm -hmm. it allowed me to ground myself in a manner that wasn't otherwise available to me at that time. I didn't have the ability to go to therapy because he'd left us a mountain of debt, and I did not have the ability to seek outside help because I was still holding together a full-time career a house and trying to raise a daughter who didn't have her dad anymore. So yeah. I think that's a long way of saying writing saved my life, but it absolutely saved my life. Yeah. I mean, I made a note when we were, um, I was making show notes this morning that writing for you and for others is healing. Um, it absolutely is healing. Yeah. And now there's great science behind it. You know, there's been enough, data, um, both at Stanford and Harvard and some of the other great research labs to show that expressive writing is as therapeutic as face-to-face -face counseling. It is as effective as EMDR. There is so much good data behind expressive writing now, but I was only doing it because it's the only way I knew how to actually calm myself down. Yeah. And, it, you know, it comes through. So I listened to your book and it was beautiful because I got to hear your voice, but also it, it, you know, I'd have to stop at times because it was like, it was like reading a diary. It was, it almost felt like reading or, or listening to a screenplay because it was so detail oriented. You'd take a breath or you'd cry or something looked or smelled a certain way. It was, you know, you we were very, very descriptive. And so it occurred to me that you must have been taking notes along the way in yeah. some form. Yeah. And so what led you from gathering the notes to publishing um, a book to help others? Well, I want to just describe the weeks and months, and you know, you're a suicide mm -hmm. loss survivor, right? 
And you, it is a very different place to be in when you've lost someone to suicide. You, You don't have the casseroles arriving on your door. You don't have people reaching out and telling you beautiful stories of your loved one because people are so, they're so stigmatized by suicide. They're so paralyzed by what to do next that I was in a very, um, I was in a very fragile place in terms of my own mental well-being. And so I would, I was working at a radio station at the time. I would get up, I would do my shift, I would come home, drop my daughter at school, and then I would lay by my big lab in this windowed office and I would cry and I would get up and I would write. And then I would lay on the floor and I would cry and I would get up and I was right. It was very um, therapeutic. And it was only um, several years later when I started to really do the investigating and joined some mental health boards and um, became a real advocate that I understood just how profoundly the entire country was suffering from mental health conditions. You know, it used to be we would say two in five people will experience a serious mental health crisis. Now that COVID has happened, I would say we could probably honestly say all of us have experienced a serious mental health decline. I I don't think that anybody who has really paid attention to their interior would say, no, it was my best time. (laughs) Yeah, which Um, brings up this idea of mental health on a spectrum, which we can circle back to, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I really do believe that what I was doing was this very, I think, almost ancient DNA that we have in our system around expressing. I mean, Mm. we used to do it by sitting around the fire after trauma and saying, the tiger chased me and and here's how I got out. And then the tiger did this. And then I did that. And because we are now at the point where we are so evolved as humans, spend so much time in our bubbles, in our computers, in our small groups, expressive writing for me has become this way of really getting into the details of my life, of accessing an interior place that I might not otherwise make time for. And I think that that's the reason so many clinical labs are beginning to look at it as well, is because it's very Mm -hmm. (laughs) cost-effective. doesn't take a lot of medication. You don't have all of the side effects of all all the other drugs. And um, for most people, even if you don't consider yourself a writer, you can learn to do it. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, as we were talking before the show, espouse all habits, all, all good habits, or if we like to say good, healthy habits to be miracle medicine because they are free. Yeah. And we don't realize that we have so much more free tools at our disposal than, you know, we know. So if someone wanted to start a habit of reflective writing, you know, where would you guide them? What would you say? So Honestly, I think one of the most handcuffing ways to go about this is to think, okay, I have to go to the store and buy a journal with a beautiful <laughs> pen. And every day I have to chain myself to a, to a um, chair with this desk, hoping that something comes up that's brilliant, right? That's not the point. The point is when you are triggered, when there's mm. an experience that you are feeling in your body where you are overwhelmed, identify it first where it comes from. What is my stomach feeling? 
what is my heart rate like? What does it remind me of? Is it a hummingbird? Is it a, is it, does it feel like when my cat jumps up on the side of my comforter? What is happening in my body that I can describe right now? Go through every single bodily sensation. What do I think that that is attached to? What experience has provoked that? How much of that experience am I willing to actually put down on a page? What happened? In what order? What did it smell like outside? What did it look like outside? How much heat was there in the day? Who was around? What colors were the cars? What? And you know, this type of trauma therapy, especially if you can do it with a guided principle, somebody who can help you through it, mm. is so effective for people with PTSD who have suffered sexual assault, who have suffered all kinds of really terrible tragedies. It's very expensive to do with a person who can guide you, but there are fabulous books that can just sort of take you through the process I've just described around describing your internal state of being and then describing your external triggers. And Mm. you will see the more granular you can get in describing these events, the more heat you take off the experience every single time you do it. Yeah. So we know that in, in, um, in trauma therapy, one of the most effective things you can do is exposure therapy. You go to the site again, mm-hmm. again, again, until it loses that ability to wake you in the middle of the night with your heart pounding, right? Yeah. But, I mean, it's, this pa- it's taking your power back almost. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. It is yeah. exactly right. It's, it's, it's understanding it in a new way. For me, it was reclaiming the narrative of what had happened in my life from a victim status to something that I could actually become powerful around. Mm-hmm. Um, for my daughter, it was reframing the shameful experience of her father's death into something that could provide her with a way to be an advocate to help other people. I think writing is the most powerful and underused mental health tool we have. And so you can love that. I'm such a huge advocate for it because it's inside every one of us. As long as we just get a computer, a pen, even a pencil, I don't care if it's a crayon, sometimes I use my makeup pencil for it. And you can throw it away. Like it doesn't exactly. need to live, you know, live yeah. on in, in, in any form. But I have this vision of you going around your house and, and, and picking up post-it notes and putting them all together to make this book. How is that yeah. process? Well, you know, lady, I, I keep coming back to how fragile my own mental health had become because we know trauma does that to people. Mm-hmm. And I needed to remind myself of the basics of just living. So I would have post-it notes, brush your teeth. Sophie needs lunch. Put vegetables in the lunch. Pick up the dog poop. Like those very, very common things that we have to remind ourselves to do in order to bring ourselves back to some sort of equanimity. And I began then going beyond the basics to look up at the sky remember in this moment that you have resilience and you can choose it. Make sure to remember that you are worthy of this life. I began writing myself encouraging notes as if I was outside of myself kind of encouraging this person to go ahead and recover from this horrible trauma. And those 
notes became such a guidebook for me in putting this book together because I didn't want the book just to be about my experience. I wanted this book to resonate with anyone who has cared for someone who has a mental illness. Yeah, I mean, the book resonated so completely for me in so many ways. And for listeners that don't know, I lost my mom when I was nine to suicide. So I could understand your daughter's point of view, right? So I was her age. Um, your daughter was nine or around nine when your yeah. late husband died. So, um, you know, I, I, I resonated deeply, but I loved how in the book that you interspersed the sort of mental health world and bipolar and things to look for and suicidality in with your story, right? It was beautifully woven between. So there was little spurts of it. And, you know, there may be people listening who have a loved one they're worried about, or they might have someone in their life they're worried might have some sort of mental illness. Um, could you just speak to that a little bit? You know, what do what do people who are listening who may be worried about themselves or others, what, what tools would you give them to look for and seek for help? You know, lady, I think it's a travesty that we don't, from the time we're grown up, uh, I mean, you know, educated in K through 12, that we don't actually know the warning signs for a mental health decline. I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> Or well, good habits, or good habits. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> we we learn all of these equations that we'll never use yeah. again in our lifetimes, but that 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 happens, you know, to to somehow get by our educational system. Um, but but the first thing I would do is just to Google what are the signs and symptoms of a mental health decline. And if if you think you, if you know a little bit of it, you can get more specific. What are the signs and symptoms of depression? What are the signs and symptoms of anxiety? But there are some common ones that everyone should know. If your sleep routine is really erratic, it is likely that you're suffering from a mental health issue. So People, describe erratic for us, because erratic means that if you've always been able to sleep seven to nine hours a day, and now you're waking up three times a night, and you're having panic attacks in the middle of the night. If you are having trouble staying awake during the middle of the day, if you are up perseverating at two o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep till three, and then you're oversleeping your, your alarm, mm -hmm. that is something that's amiss in your mental health. I mean, and I just want to point out too, that your, your husband also, um, your late husband had um, the, the phenomenon, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong of sleeping during, was he sleeping during the day and awake yeah. and being awake at night? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. His, yeah. sleep, his sleep got so um, irregular, I didn't even recognize it as the same person. Mm. Okay. Um, the, the second thing is, and this is really hard to determine because COVID upset so many people's eating habits, but mm. eating is a really good sign of how you're doing. So if suddenly you have become completely uninterested in food, you just can't find an appetite. That's a very strong warning that something's really wrong with your mental health. Um, conversely, if you find yourself binge eating or eating for comfort or constantly feeding yourself because you're so anxiety ridden, that's also a sign. Mm -hmm. If you're very restrictive about only eating certain colors and certain types of foods at certain times, that's also a time. A very dear friend of mine just um, disclosed to me that she, she wakes up sometimes surrounded now by cookie wrappers and she is, she is night eating without even realizing it. Mm. 
Mm. There have been so, so much increase in um, eating problems because of quarantine. Because yeah, I've people, noticed that a lot with my, my coaching clients as well. Yeah, people were so, they have so little control and they are, you know, they're so close in proximity to food that food became the way of coping for many people. Mm. Um, if yeah. we move to sort of mood regulation, if you used to be what we would consider kind of an optimistic person and you find yourself unable to turn off the television around world events, unable to find any perspective of joy, unable to think beyond what is pleasurable in your life today, this is a strong warning sign that you should seek out mental health care. Um, the other thing that people don't really realize is sensitivity to light, mm. sound, the, the irritability factor of mental health decline is often overlooked. But if you're a person who used to love being around people and now you find they just bug you and you <laughs> snap at people constantly and you don't have any bandwidth to be able to perform the way that, you know, that the structures that you used to, that's also a very big trigger warning. Um, there's, a, there's a whole list of things that are major fire alarms for mental health. And most people walk around not understanding, oh my gosh, this is a mental health symptom. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is, is, is as you describe those things, I think everyone listening can identify with at least one of them, especially during the past two years of this pandemic. Yeah. And so I'd like for you, you talk about this in the book and I've, I've watched other interviews with you where you've talked about it, but there is a spectrum of mental illness. I love that you said in an interview that I listened to that it's not us versus them. And I think it's really easy for people to think, okay, I'm not sick. I'm well, and right. other people are mentally ill and create sort of this boundary or divide, yeah. Yeah. but we're all on the spectrum, right? right? And we've all seen, seen it in ourselves yeah. during quarantine. So, so tell us more about that. I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I like to say we're along a spectrum of mental health and that those who have um, uh, proper housing and they have proper food and proper shelter, and they have relationships with people that love them. And they have a coach like you who can help them think about their interior. Those are people who are probably doing pretty well on the mental health spectrum. But say you're going through a divorce, lady. Say somehow your business turned topsy-turvy and you were having trouble meeting your invoices at the end of the month. Then say something happened to your beloved dog or cat. Then say war breaks out as it has and a pandemic. You know what? You might not be on that, you know, wonderful scale of mental health anymore. Now for people who have had trauma in the past, for people who don't have housing, they don't have any ability to like make ends meet for themselves, they're further along on a on a spectrum of mental mental unwell, right? Yeah. And so I want everyone to understand our brains are just another organ. They're the most important organ in our body, but they can be stressed. They can get toxic burnout. They can get very, very sick. They can also get better with mm -hmm. daily habits, support, medication, the right kind of medication, therapy, writing. And so I feel like we're constantly kind of moving along this scale of like, hmm, where am I today? What yeah. is my check-in? If I had to say on a scale of one to 10, where am I today? 
Yeah. And you, in your book, you write about this amazing concept, which I loved this analogy that our brains, we need to treat them like an organ, just like our liver or hearts and, and care for them. And you equated this to, if you drink too much alcohol, you damage your liver. And if you do certain things, you will damage your brain, you know, or you're not taking care of this organ. And I loved that. And if you want to tell listeners a little bit more about what you meant. Yeah. I mean, I, when my daughter um, went into middle school, there were a lot of kids who were already doing drugs and, and drinking. And I said, look, this is a choice that every person has to make for themselves, but we have to understand that in our family, our brains are really, really sensitive to dopamine and serotonin. We might have too much. Sometimes we might have too little. What you don't want to do is treat your brain in a way that makes it like you could be vulnerable just because of a habit that you choose to pick up. So when people decide to drink, they got to know that the depressive um, properties of alcohol are really going to impact their serotonin and their dopamine. They have to truly understand that if they're going to do any kind of Red Bull or any kind of amphetamine type thing, they could be pushed over into a slightly more manic phase. And for people who have proximity to bipolar disorder, depression, or anxiety, I just say use those substances with so much caution because it is really powerful stuff on brains, especially those brains that have a genetic propensity to mental illness. Gosh, that's amazing. And I think it's just amazing analogy for us to know that brain care, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that's a term, but I'm going to make it, it one. <laughs> brain yeah. care is important. And yeah. we talk about mental well-being, but we don't really talk about taking care of, we talk about taking care of, again, of all these different organs, our hearts, our livers, our kidneys, yeah. our intestines, our gut, but we don't really talk about taking care of our brains. And it is, it's the key. You know, it's one of the keys here. So we're going to hang tight and go to break. So everybody um, hang on. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the light after the dark. And we're here with Sheila Hamilton. Thanks so much, you guys. We'll be right back. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about her individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! 
Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program, and here again is Lady Fuller. And we're back. Thanks, everyone, for hanging in there. We're here with Sheila Hamilton, who is a guru of mental health, but also has written this beautiful book. Um, about bipolar and her her late husband's suicide, and is here to share with us her bright light. And I'm so thankful you're here today, Sheila. Thank you, Thank you. For, for being with us. So, that. you know, I think one of the things we talked about before the brain break brain is brain health, <laughs> brain health, and and taking care of your brain and, and having a barometer for understanding that our wellness or mental wellness is on this more fluid sort of scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you could just tell us a little bit about the light after the dark. So for you personally in the book, you describe in detail, harrowing detail. I mean, it was it was hard to to read and listen to because you you underwent such a dark night of the soul after um, before and after you lost your husband and and really picked yourself up out of nothing. So tell us about your journey from going from the dark to the light because I think this is the part about hope in mental health that's so important for those listeners and and for for everyone to know. You know, I think, um, Lady, probably the guiding principle that I used was that my a lot of my husband's problems, a lot of his decline was brought on because of shame and secrecy. He was mm. so ashamed of suffering from a mental health issue that he didn't want help, that he didn't want anyone to know what he was going through, and that that secrecy, even in our own household, caused way more suffering than we needed. And so I wanted to kind of shift the paradigm to say no more. Mm. We're going to be open. We're going to be honest and we're going to be vulnerable about what we're going through. And so, I mean, much to my daughter's dismay, I was very open from the very beginning, including telling her precisely what had happened to her father, not in great detail, but to let her know um, that he had died by suicide, that we were going to do our very best to be really good advocates for people who suffered from mental health declines. And, and to also say, for us going forward, we have to be really cognizant of how we're treating ourselves. So that means, you know, the basics of physical health are the underpinnings of mental health, right? Proper mm, love nutrition, proper exercise. And then you get into this sort of social, uh, societal, spiritual realm where it's about connection. It's mm. about, are you opening your heart to love? Are you opening your heart to being cared for? Are you opening your physical presence to, to being willing to go on? And I had to actually go through a process of asking myself, is this something you want to do? Are you here for it? And, you know, I think 
for any suicide loss survivor out there, you understand what I'm talking about. It mm-hmm. is it is a questioning that is so profoundly scary. And once you come to your conclusion that you are going to live, I think it is like the most um, liberating time because it's almost like you get to reorganize yourself. You get yeah. to say, here's how I'm going to do this differently. And so the principles of spiritual openness and also of, of kind of saying, um, I'm, I'm ready to be in this world and accept love and be a part of the human race going forward. And then I think just the, the habits um, that you talk about every single day, lady, getting out in nature, convening with something bigger than ourselves, um, caring for your pets in a way that is really profoundly intimate and knowing how much they depend upon you and they bring joy to you. Um, making sure that you have someone in your life that you intimately trust, someone you can tell every single secret to. Doesn't I don't really believe that it has to be a therapist. I think it can be a, a spiritual leader. I think it can be a best friend who listens without judgment. It can also be, I think, an inanimate object. <laughs> I talk to my dog a lot or, or, or the wall, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> they listen very well. Yeah. But, but I have, I, I have a team of um, four doctors who consult on our program. And one of them said something I thought was quite profound. She said, I think we could eliminate half of our mental health declines in the country. If people did three things, if they had a person they talked to every single day, without judgment or without any kind of, of secrecy, if they moved their bodies in a meaningful and joyous way. And that doesn't mean punishing exercise. You know, that means mm. uh, rolling on the floor with your dog, dancing to music, gardening, stuff that actually brings your brain joy. And then the other one is proper nutrition, because we do know so much more right now about the gut brain access and how all those serotonin stores are actually beginning in the gut. We used to think it was the brain. Now we sort of know like, oh my gosh, all of this traveling along the vagus nerve, this comes from your microbiome. So take care of your gut. Yeah. So brain care is gut care. That's right. That's absolutely the truth. Yeah. So just to review, so so finding someone who can listen to you or expressing yourself, and that could be um, in reflective writing. Right? Yes, that's right. Uh, moving your body yes. and um, healthy eating. Yes. And of that. course, that comes along with, you know, proper hydration and mm. proper sleep and all of those other things. I just really come back to those three tenets every day because if I don't do those things every day, I'm a really sensitive person and I can get knocked off pretty quickly. And I, and I'll always ask myself, huh, did it, what did you, what have you eaten today? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. So, so I am a huge proponent of the morning routine. So I ask everyone, do you have one and what is it? Yeah, I do actually. Um, when I was starting my business, I used to get up and immediately check my phone and I, I saw, uh, a really amazing study out of Harvard, just talking about the number of interruptions that you have on your brain. And that is answering email, that's answering DMs, that's answering texts, answering Slack is so bad for our brain focus and productivity. I don't 
pick up my phone now, except for anything but pure enjoyment, like maybe look at the monkeys on TikTok, you know, or something. <laughs> Cat um, videos. Exactly. Yeah, something. But, but I do try to sit in just, um, I don't even call it meditation anymore because I'm such a horrible meditator, but I do sit in mindfulness and reflectiveness for about 10 minutes upon waking. It's a, it's a, it's a game changer. It is. It allows that time for gratitude. It allows that time for reflectiveness about what is the most important priority of the day. It allows you to sort of set what your consciousness is going to be about and what you're going to be focused on. And I'll tell you, one of the worst things we do as humans is get into that habitual, I'm going to the coffee machine, I'm opening my phone. I That is where mental health declines happen. Is it? I know my coach, coaching clients. I'll say, "Go tell me all about what you're doing." They're like, "Well, I wake up and I look at my phone, and then I turn yeah. on the news." Right. I was like, "Eek! Stop right there! The yeah. news needs to go. The phone needs yes. to go in the bathroom." You know, yes. there's like 97 percent of Americans look at their phone within one minute of waking. Yeah, and I always say that's a lot of people to invite into your bedroom before you've put your clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I, I really love the cognitive therapy tools. I use them all the time. And one of those that I use the most, even when I'm on Zoom calls, is just stop. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, where you stop, you take a deep cleansing breath, you observe your surroundings. My butt is in this chair. I love ladies high top pony. It's so <laughs> cute. You observe your surroundings. You actually interact with your surroundings. And then you proceed. And I like to say it's just like refreshing my brain screen mm-hmm. a, a yeah. few times a day. You can do it without people even noticing that you're doing it. And it is so helpful as a tool to reset yourself and your brain. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, for those people listening, it's hard to do Zooms all day or it's hard to be on meetings all day. And we have definitely, for those people that work in a, a corporate setting or even a setting from home, you know, we're on Zoom all day and it is really hard to focus and yeah. listen, right? Listening is something that is is a lost art. I have a whole book in me about listening. But the 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 idea is that to, to use your stop principle helps us refocus so that we can remain open and expanded and listening to those people yeah. in our lives, which builds beautiful connection back to your point. Anyway, I interrupted your morning routine. So go back. No, no, no. I, and, and I think that if you get that finished, then you'll notice that when you're sitting on the couch and you're giving your dog his morning massage or his, you know, cuddles, you'll be much more present for the experience. So what I like to think about is if I start that way, then can I build on the next experience also being really fully present to that moment? When I sit with you, I really want to be fully present to your ideas, to your questions, to what you have to say. Can you continue to build on all of those things and stop this habitual patterning that we have as humans that takes us away from our beauty and our spirits? Yeah. And it takes, it steals our own time. Yes. Right. So it's this like concept, like if we're not present, you know, um, then we're, uh, we're, we're missing our lives yeah. and we only have so much life. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what you learn being um, a survivor of, you know, I think for every person that dies by suicide, there's seven, I mean, the, the data changes, but seven to eight or six to eight uh, severely impacted survivors. Yeah, that's right. Right. That you realize how precious life is. And anyone who's undergone a terminal illness or a near death experience knows this. 
And so things start to shift, right? It's how we spend that time. Because if we spend our whole time on Zoom calls and spaced out and thinking about, you know, what we're going to eat for lunch or whatever, then, then we might as well be asleep. Yeah. I also just really think um, Zoom has been particularly difficult, especially for people who, you know, like if you didn't feel okay about your appearance before the pandemic, imagine what Zoom did for us. It's like, <laughs> it's not good. Right. And so it's just like, and not really fair if you don't really like looking at yourself. And there, I read this study around mirror fatigue, especially for women, how devastating Zoom has been because they don't like seeing themselves. You might swipe your mascara on in the morning and you might, but you're not a person who loves looking at your image. And so Zoom has been really, really hard on America's workers, especially females. So I always say, as part of your negotiation with your managers, explain whether you have mirror fatigue. Talk to them about what it means to have to look at your image constantly and say, can I have this time off? Can I do at least two meetings a day with it off? Can I walk in nature while I listen to the call? Can I make sure that I'm just lying on the floor breathing deeply while I listen to the call? There's all kinds of creative things that we can do so that we're not suffering because of this. And Zoom, I, I hate to say it, I love you, Zoom. I hate you, Zoom. <laughs> <It's one of laughs> no, those. totally. I mean, they should definitely have a setting where you can't see yourself because right. um, and maybe there is, and technology hates yeah. me, as I've told you before. But I actually meet with my coaching clients on the phone, which sounds incredibly old school. Yeah. But I believe that there's so much intonation that comes through the phone. And I prefer that my clients go for a walk yeah. while I'm talking to them. Or if I'm doing a meditation exercise, they close their eyes and aren't worried yeah. about what they look like. And it's funny because I also run a small business and there'll be Zoom calls. And I'll say like, what happened to the conference call? Like, <laughs> I love a good conference call. Right, exactly. <laughs> Can we bring it back? Yeah, yeah. Like we should be bringing it back for sure. Yeah. Know, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with a good conference call. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us more about like, what's next? Do you have another book in you or, or what? Yeah, I have, um, I've really been thinking, lady, about the the importance of this idea of building mental health habits and the ability to um, kind of make sure that your kids have emotional intelligence as their guiding principle more than anything else. And and this really is a, as a result of um, the recent data because. In Mental Health America's most recent poll, the number of kids who reported active suicidal ideation, and that is kids who not only are thinking about suicide every day, but they actually have a plan, was so devastating to me that I just felt like maybe my efforts need to be um, more downstream, more around prevention of um, these kind of lifelong feelings of low self-esteem and the ability to, to not be able to cope with our own interiors. Maybe I need to do more for kids. And so I, that's what I've been talking with my editor about. I feel like there is a real desperate need for this kind of programming to be suited for kids in their language and their ability to understand. It's um, Kids really got hit hard by, by COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of parents are like, whatever, it's over. What do you mean? But it was um, almost three really important developmental years for young kids 
when they were finding out about where they fit in society and their friends groups and who they are and what they love. And that was sort of stopped short. And so I think there's probably more of a need for this kind of information now than ever before. Yeah. I mean, so many things are coming up for me, but one is that, um, you know, it's not over. So I think actually this time of coming out of COVID could be more precious and sensitive and tender than the past two years were because it's not, you don't have PTSD until you come home from battle. That's right. Like when you're in the fight, you're just in survival mode, That's right? but all of the feelings come to the surface when we're back into safety. So if we're coming back into a safe zone, I actually think us as a, as a community in America, we're, we're much in, in the world, we're much more at a tender place now than ever before. I totally agree. And I was on a board meeting for a suicide prevention center. I'm a part of locally here in Aspen. And the data came out that um, in our valley, the suicidality of under 11 has gone up 137%. Yeah, those are the statistics that I'm reading too. It's, um, it's really very concerning to me. And what's happening is now that life is somewhat returning to normal, everyone is expecting kids to be caught up to be on task, to be great students again. And actually they're just dealing with the trauma of everything that they've gone through. And, you know, they call mental health always the long tail of whatever it is, mental health, long tail of wars, the long tail of pandemics. This tail is very long and it's really devastating. And I'll honestly, every corporate client I deal with, we have Q and A sessions. Most people are most concerned about their kids. Yeah, see how it impacted their children, and they're really worried about whether or not they're going to be okay. Yeah, and and obviously we just had this recent death at Stanford where your daughter—I don't know if she's still there—but she was attended um, university, and that brought up the stats that, um, and and you you might know the more present stats that between eighteen and twenty-four. It's something like, you know, one, nine and 10 have thought about suicide in the past year or something. And I don't know what the exact stats are, but alarming statistics. Yeah, it's super alarming. And there's also such an interesting part of the perfectionist ideal that, that Stanford puts out there that's also really problematic. You know, we have to stop looking at kids as producers and as, you know, our brilliant minds and allow them to be kids. We really Mm -hmm. got to stop this idea that we're creating this superhuman race of thinkers and doers and beers and let them be human beings. Yeah. I like to say I'm being a human being and not a human doer right now. Thank you. Let me sit on the couch and look out the window. (laughs) Yes. I am actually one of those moms I'm known for, you know, allowing my kids to rest. And it's interesting, the more I see them rest because my, my children, like all children, you know, certain places are over-programmed, right? They live here in Colorado. They spend a lot of time outside doing activities and, and I find that when they're not in school, they're doing physical activities. And so they're tired. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine once said, well, your son, he's always doing things. And one day he just kind of couldn't do anything else. He was so tired. And so I let him hang out at home. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to let him have a mental health day. Mm-hmm. He's 12. Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing was he watched his iPad a little bit. And then I had him do some chores. And then he was super bored. And I was like, I'm just going to let him be bored and see what happens. And the next thing I knew, he was out in the backyard 
on the play structure, which is small, is for toddlers. And so he's 12. And he built a ski jump with, with oh some pallets and he was piling. And the thing is, it made me think this is what children need more of, right? He, need, he needed to just use his brain in sort of a non-linear or fashion for productivity or goal orienting. It was just to do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. I and will it was, say, it was you know, beautiful. When- when parents say, how, how, how did your kid get into Stanford? I said, well, the story I always come back to is she was four years old and we were rushing off on a Saturday morning to another soccer game followed by piano and something else. And she announced to me that she was overscheduled. And from that time on, we stayed home and we read books, mm-hmm. she picked up the guitar on her own, taught herself how to play guitar. She became extremely creative. And I would say the creative skills that come from allowing boredom and time alone are probably the most important factors in allowing kids to grow expansive brains. I love that. Boredom is the... (laughs) I am am not the overdoer mom at all. And, And she's doing just fine. It sounds like it. So tell us, if listeners want more of you, how can they find your radio show, your podcast, um, if they want to book you for speaking or corporate events, let us know. Oh, yes, please. Um, we're at beyondwellmedia.com. And as I say, I have a team of four doctors. We do managerial trainings, and we also do a whole library of podcast platforming for um, for mental health, well-being, and working in a very changed environment in the workplace right now. And then my book is available at all bookstores. I like indie bookstores. If you have one near you, it's called All the Things We Never Knew. And I'm most just happy if people follow me on social media. I'm under Sheila Hamilton on everything, Twitter, Instagram, even TikTok. I (laughs) give a few mental health tips every now and then. So I hope that you can find me that way. Awesome. Awesome. And please pick up the book and check out the podcast. Um, The book was, it it really did change my life. I'm so, um, so blessed to have, have, have encountered you and to have read it. And as we reach the end of the show, you can continue the conversation on my Facebook group at Habits for Happiness. And remember everyone, the road to happiness is paved with healthy habits. Please listen next week for another riveting conversation on a powerful habit that can change your life. And thank you, Sheila, for being here. Thank you, Lady. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.